Um, one, one more announcement that I wanted to uh, add to, to the ones that Joe made is that uh, we are accepting nominations for elders. Uh, New Hope is led by a team of elders, and uh, the way that people become elders is that folks from the congregation will nominate them. Uh, after they're nominated, then uh, the people who are currently on the elder team will uh, go through a, an initial discernment process with those folks. And then uh, if everybody believes that the person ought to be serving, then we'll bring them to the congregation for uh, approval. Uh, But now is the time, if you are interested uh, in nominating somebody, to do that. You can uh, uh, contact Kevin Jones. His uh, email and phone number are on the back of the bulletin. He's our lead elder. And uh, you can also ask any elder if you have questions about the process or, uh, or what qualifications are involved. Well, I confess that I'm feeling a little bit silly. I confess that I am not entirely comfortable right now. And the reason is that about a year and a half ago, when we mapped out this series, I decided that we would spend the summer in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 16 has a bunch of different things in it. It's sort of a grab bag. It's the potpourri category of the letter. There's, Paul's giving shout-outs to some people and he's reminding people of other things and he's doing, saying other, other things that, uh, that we want to make quick note of. And one of the reasons for that is, of course, that you know, this is the end of the letter and this is the time when we're ending it. turned out we wanted to finish it up by the end of the summer so we'd start something new in the fall. Uh, The other reason is that summertime we have so many folks going away on vacation and uh, people missing time, people covering for each other in the nursery, that it's better to have something that uh, you can kind of jump in and out of as as necessary. Of course, I did not know when I made the schedule that I would be preaching this to you less than 24 hours after somebody drove a car into a group of people protesting in Charlottesville, Virginia. I didn't know that I would be preaching this less than 24 hours after two police died when a helicopter that was monitoring these events crashed. This morning, we're going to take a close look at two contested, difficult-to-understand terms, one of which is a Greek word, another of which is an Aramaic phrase. And so, I always should be able to say, well, so what? Right? I always should be able to justify why we're spending the time that we're spending and there's a quick answer which is to say that we believe those things that we just sang in that hymn speak O lord as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word we do believe that god's word is holy food is nourishment for us all of it the stuff that we understand and the stuff that we don't the stuff that seems relevant and the stuff that just seems like you're going to wonder. You'd like to ask someday why that was left in there. Why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say, hey, look, I'm writing this down. Here's my handwriting. But I think I have an answer to the so what. At least I hope so. And I think that actually as we go through this text this morning, it will come clear. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Come, O Lord. 
there are two terms, as I mentioned in here, both of which I think should immediately make us uncomfortable. The first is the Greek word anathema. The second is the Aramaic word maranatha, the Aramaic phrase anathema should probably make us uncomfortable because it's unpleasant and maranatha because it's unfamiliar. In fact, this is the only place in all Scripture that that phrase shows up. But they matter. And this morning I want to break down why they matter and how, and actually to talk a little bit about how they cash out in the life of our church and the way that we worship. The first anathema that's the translation of let him be accursed, or in the old NIV, a curse be on him if anyone does not love the Lord. Paul rather likes this term. He uses it in Galatians, he uses it in Romans, he uses this early on in first Corinth, earlier on in First Corinthians and Galatians. At the beginning of his letter to the Galatians, he actually uses it twice. He says to the church in, in Galatia, if even if we or an angel of heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, anathema. Let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul has absolutely no patience, no tolerance for any gospel other than the true gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He has come in the flesh, that He died to forgive sins, that He rose again on the third day as a validation of everything that He said, that all of this is consistent with the biblical witness of the law and the prophets. It was a continuation of the story that God is writing in and through His people, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, that He has come and that He will come again. This is the Gospel we preach. Paul says we preach Christ and Him crucified. And there's no point in doing anything else. Now in in Romans, Paul uses this term in a way that is sort of a a hyperbole. I think he's uh, making a rhetorical move when he says at the beginning of chapter 9 of Romans that I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were anathema, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Here Paul, as we discussed when we went through Romans a few years ago, Paul has laid out and lays out in chapters one through eight of Romans this magnificent declaration of the gospel message that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that, that uh, Jews may be convicted by Torah, by the law, and, and Greeks may be convicted by their conscience, but all of us stand before God with nothing to say. And yet God in His mercy, even while we were sinners, He died for us so that we could be re- reconciled to Him, restored to a relationship with Him that it cannot, be, cannot be interfered with by, by sin, by death, by our own consciences, but that we are restored to God. And then at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul says, and, and what breaks my heart is that my fellow Jews mostly are not seeing this. That most of my fellow Jews are not embracing this message that, that the salvation of Israel has come through its Messiah, Jesus. 
Paul himself, of course, had been in that position. He started off his career as a, a zealous persecutor of the church because he believed that the church was worshiping a false god. And then when Jesus appeared to him as Paul was on that road to Damascus and said, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul realized that his zeal was misdirected. And so he came to preach this Christ who was crucified. He came to know Him and to worship Him as Lord. And it, it, it tore him up that other Jews were not seeing the same thing that he was saying. And so he says, I, I, I could wish that I were anathema, that I were cursed. If, if they would all come in, then, then you could throw me off. Moses says something similar to that to God when he's pleading with God for the people of Israel. Again, I don't think Paul actually wants to be cut off. This is a, a dramatic way of expressing his anguish. But Paul is, I think, being more literal back in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, which is the other place other than here where he uses this word, anathema. In chapter 12, when he's talking about spiritual gifts he's saying I, I don't want you to be ignorant you know that those of you when you're pagans somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols and so that's why i'm telling you that nobody who is speaking by the spirit of god can say jesus be anathema jesus be cursed and no one can say jesus is lord except by the holy spirit as we talked about when we were in the spiritual gifts passage that it seems that there were folks in Corinth who were, were so jazzed about the way they were worshiping Jesus that they were basically worshiping the way they were worshiping rather than worshiping Jesus. That their focus was on the things that they did, the things that they felt, the things that they said rather than the things that Jesus did the things that, that the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives and the, the sound teaching that Paul and the other apostles had for them. And so here, when Paul says at the end, if anyone does not Lord, love the Lord, anathema, I think Paul's deadly serious about this. These last few verses of 1 Corinthians, it seems Paul wrote, as he says in verse 21, in my own hand, Paul, like many letter writers of the first century would have had an amanuensis or a secretary, somebody to write the letters for him. In fact, uh, we, we know the name of the person who, who writes the letters in, in some of them. You, you get, uh, uh, in, in Romans, for example, Tertius, who's writing it, gets to say, hey, I'm Tertius and I'm writing this. Um, Paul says at the end, he grabs the pen and he writes the last bit of it in his own hand. And, and, and of the 32 words that conclude this letter, the 15th and 16th smack dab in the middle are Maranatha. And the 14th is Anathema. So the core, the very center of what Paul writes at the end is these words. So Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, Anathema. Curse be upon him. If anyone loves the way that they're worshiping the Lord, if anyone loves their own sense of their importance, if anyone loves the team they're on, if anyone loves their preferred apostle more than they love Jesus, 
They're completely off base. Now, one of the reasons that this anathema word and concept can be a little uncomfortable is the way that it ended up getting used in the history of the church. Now, early on in the, the earliest councils of the church, the, this was, uh, anathematization, this declaration that somebody was out of bounds was used to protect the church against heresy. And again, it's in, in, in continuity with Paul saying, uh, and, and other writers of the New Testament saying things like, if anyone does not say that Jesus has come in the flesh, he is preaching a false gospel. If people said, like the Arians did, that Jesus was a God, but not fully God, well, that's out of bounds. That's anathema. If anyone says that Jesus was not fully human, that's also anathema. If anyone says that the Holy Spirit is lesser than the other persons of the Trinity, that's anathema. There are some key commitments that we make theologically as we describe this faith that we hold that we have to maintain. The problem was that the church got a little too comfortable anathematizing people that they didn't agree with. And what developed over time was that this anathema got applied not just to heretics, not just to people who would say things that were completely counter to the Scripture, but basically to people that were political opponents, people that they didn't like. And so, in the great schism of 1054, when the uh, Eastern and Western church split ostensibly over a few theological issues, but really over whether the Pope of Rome or the Patriarch of Constantinople was in charge, they anathematized each other. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church kept anathematizing each other. They, they were in a state where they had anathematized each other up until 1965. 1965, they, got back to, they, they came back together, the Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople, and said, yeah, we, we probably shouldn't have done that, uh, so we're no longer anathema. But it, it, in the Reformation, you can read in the, the Council of Trent, the declarations of the Catholic Church, anathematizing the Protestants for all of the wicked false teaching that they have, that they have uh, promulgated, and of course the Protestants returning the favor and anathematizing the Catholics. And again, depending on which branch of the Christian family tree you're, you're looking at, anathematization can actually be understood as even more serious than excommunication. You know, excommunication is when you say, well, you cannot be in communion. You are not in communion with us. You cannot, literally, you cannot come to the communion table with us because you have either done something or taught something that is so out of bounds that until you repent, you are no longer welcome here. And some people understood excommunication to mean you're still part of the church, you're still part of the body, but, but because you've done such a naughty thing, you cannot be fully participating in the life of the body. But anathematizing somebody goes beyond that a step and says, you aren't even part of the church. You're out. And so the fact that this got overused in the course of church history is the sort of thing that can make us uncomfortable, but 
the fact that God's people have abused something and have, have, have not managed to use it well doesn't mean that we should abandon it. It simply means that we should recognize how it ought to be used. and it ought, The anathematization ought to be used to declare out of bounds gross heresy. It should not be used to declare out of bounds differences of opinion that are well within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. So that's anathema. And then we have the Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, which means, Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord. Maranatha. This is the only place in the whole Bible that this Aramaic phrase shows up. There are a few other Aramaic phrases that show up in Scripture in the New Testament where Jesus says, Talita kum, get up. Or when He is on on the uh, on the cross and he says Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani my lord my lord why have you forsaken me there there are places where where even hebrew shows up little phrases here and there but uh this is one of those spots where not only do we have a phrase that only shows up once but it's in another language from the greek that most of the new testament is written in and one of the things that we have to do when we find one of these verses is we have to read other literature around the New Testament that may give us a clue to what this means. And as it turns out, there's a text that helps us to do that uh, called the Didache. Now, uh, the Didache, uh, early on in the church, there were some folks who actually thought the Didache belonged in the Bible. They ultimately decided it really didn't, but it was known as the teaching of the Twelve, a traditional teaching, uh, traditional teachings of the church. It's one of the very earliest documents of the church that we have that's uh that's not in the new testament probably dates from the late first century so we're, we're talking uh only several decades after the life death, death and resurrection of jesus and in the didache we have this passage this verse it says let grace come and let this world pass away hosanna to the son of david if anyone is holy let him come if anyone is not let him repent Maranatha, Amen. So not only do we have uh, Maranatha, in this verse we have Hosanna, which is uh, from, uh, again, just a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Hoshiana, which, which, uh, which means uh, save. Save us. Help. And uh, because of the, the way that that was situated in, in the Palm Sunday, where people were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the psalm, uh, this became a very early slogan of the church, or something that the church said very early on, uh, along with Maranatha, our Lord come. Now, what's interesting about this is that, and 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 again, this is really interesting to me. May not be interesting to know, to you, but you you should know. In the mo- the earliest manuscripts, uh, they were trying to economize uh, on space, so they actually didn't put spaces in between letters. So uh, the the joke is is if you if you were to read G O D I S N O W H E R E, does that say God is now here or God is nowhere? Well, if you know something about who's speaking and why they're speaking, you know where to divide the words. Well, w- with Maranatha, actually, if you have it, if you read it as Maran Atha, it means the Lord has come. If you read it as Marana Tha, it means our Lord come. Well, it could actually mean both. Both of these could be embedded in it. It could be that 
the church both wanted to confess that Jesus has come and that He is coming again. But what's especially interesting about this, this passage, about this verse, is the place where it comes. See, where it comes in the Didache is when the Didache is giving instructions about taking communion. And it says, after you take communion, literally after you've had enough, after you've had your fill, then you give thanks this way. You say, we give thanks, O Father, for Your holy name which You caused to dwell in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality that You've made known to us through Jesus, Your servant, to You be the glory forever. You, Almighty Master, created all things for Your name's sake and gave food and drink to humans to enjoy so that they might give You thanks. But to us, You've graciously given spiritual food and drink and eternal life through Your servant. Above all, we give thanks to You because You're mighty, to you be the glory forever. Remember your church, Lord, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. And from the four winds, gather the church that has been sanctified into your kingdom, which you've prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. And then may grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. And if anyone is not, let him repent. Maranatha. Amen. So, what we find is that this word is closely linked in the, in the life of the early church to the Eucharist, to the communion service. And this should remind us, those of us who've been hanging out in 1 Corinthians for a while, that in fact, Paul seems to be echoing this in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians when Paul is giving them instructions about the Eucharist, about communion, about the way they worship. He says that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And the reason this is important, Paul says right before this, is because whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we talked about when we were in this passage, what Paul is not saying is that you need to try really hard not to sin between the last time you confessed and when you take the Eucharist. That you have to like come into church and not talk to anybody so that you don't say something you shouldn't. We're not supposed to somehow make ourselves presentable to God when we take the Eucharist. The whole point of it is that we're not presentable to God and we need His forgiveness to wash over us. We need His body and His blood to nourish us and to cleanse us. I think what Paul is talking about here is people who are undermining the unity of the church. People who are harming their brothers and sisters by the way they're treating them. Specifically in Corinth where you had the wealthier members of the community calling this a Eucharist or a love feast when really it was just a big drinking party. And then by the time the poorer folks in the church showed up, possibly their own slaves, all the food was gone and all they got was, was crumbs and dregs. And Paul says, you, 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 want, you want a gold star for this? You want me to tell you how happy I am that you guys are meeting for the Eucharist when that's the way you celebrate it? Paul says, look, I would rather you, di- I would rather you didn't have church than that you have church that way. No, when we drink 
this cup, when we eat this bread together, when we take the Eucharist, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And it's because of this that every time we take the Eucharist here at New Hope, we mention this. Right after we take the bread and the wine together, I, I remind us that Paul says that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And then I pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen. And I wish I could say that 15 years ago when we were first planning out how we would do the Eucharist at New Hope, that I had the Didache in mind and the ancient traditions of the church where we said Maranatha. Maybe it was rattling around in there somewhere. Maybe I just got lucky. But what I do know is that the way that we celebrate the Eucharist actually does have deep roots in the practices of the earliest church. When we pray, come, O Lord. Now, there are other reasons we do this. One of the reasons that I always like to point out that Paul says that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, is that there is a missional aspect to the Eucharist. When we, when we celebrate the Eucharist together, we're, we're not just celebrating the fact that we have been forgiven and we are welcome at the table, which is important. And we are, of course, doing that. And we are saying, yes, we are together at the table. We are having communion. We, all of us together, are sharing this common bread and this common cup. We're saying that, but that's not all we're saying. We're saying that we are looking forward to the great supper of the Lamb, the great wedding feast in, in glory. And we are saying that, but that's not all we're saying. What we're also saying, every time we take the bread and the cup together, which at New Hope we do about once a month, we are saying that Jesus has come and that Jesus is coming. We are saying Maran Atta and we are saying Marana Tha. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And we're doing it along with all of God's faithful people, which is why when we receive the Eucharist, we, before we do that, we stand and we recite together the Nicene Creed. We affirm those truths of the Christian faith that God's faithful people have affirmed throughout the centuries. And we do that because we take seriously the things that Paul says about making sure that we are saying the things that we should say about Jesus. That we are not bringing an, other, an alternate gospel. We're not improvising on what God has already provided to us. But that we are firmly, firmly rooted in the historic true gospel that the church has always professed. And we do this because Jesus has come. Because we do confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to save sinners. We do this because we believe that He did live and die and rise again for our sake. And that this is a story we cannot tell too often. This is a story that we cannot repeat too much. This is the faith that we profess. And this is what we live out. And this is what forms us as a community. Marana, Maran Atha, Jesus our Lord has come. 
But it's not just what we experience now that's important. You'll remember Paul said back in chapter 15, verse 19, he says, you know, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are the most pitiful people on the planet. If it's just for the here and now that we have hope in Christ, Paul says we are missing out on Maranatha. The fact that our Lord will come. And that we pray and we look forward to His coming again in glory to to judge the living and the dead and to establish His kingdom which will have no end. And we as the church cannot let go of either. We can't let go of the fact that Jesus has come. We can't let go of the fact that He is coming again. And holding both of those, I think, is what enables us to pick up the newspaper in the morning or to look on the internet and see what's going on in the world and to be able to live as God's faithful people in the midst of the world we're in. Recognizing that because Jesus has come, His people have the resources of the Holy Spirit to be salt and light in the world that we can partner with God in His work of cosmic reconciliation. That His people can be part of making peace rather than sowing division and dissent. That we can be agents of love rather than hate. That we can be people who speak truth rather than lies. That we can, in in our small ways, in whatever the ways those are in our communities, that we can bring life rather than death. But we also know that this is a messed up place. Throughout history, there have been people who have thought, oh good, finally humanity's getting it. And now that we, once everybody gets the fact that we've got it, then it's going to be fine. Then things are going to get better. And the fact is, it just never works out that way, does it? There's always somebody... Some crazy, as David Wilcox says, with an army or, or a knife to wake you from your daydream and bring the fear back in your life. Which is why we desperately need a Lord, a King with the power and the justice to ultimately sort it all out. And so we as the church confess. Maranatha, Jesus has come. And we pray, Maranatha. Lord, come. Come, O Lord. Amen.